Hello and welcome to another episode of the Knowledge Booth podcast. Today you are joined by myself, David Black, Tony Bentall, Ross Meadows, and we also have a special guest here, Zach Pagliano from Red Ship Lawyers in Brisbane, talking about, uh, I guess, a lot of legal um, concerns around business. Uh, we'll specialise in sort of the trademarks, um, copyright, terms and conditions, sort of a lot of those, I guess, commonly um, asked questions in this area. Uh, Zach, welcome. Thank you. Ross, Tony, Thank how you. are you both? G'day. Not too bad. That's Not good. Too bad. That's good. Good to be good. back. <laughs> it's been a little while. <laughs> Excited for this one. Yeah, exactly. It should be a really, is a, yeah. This is a great topic. Really good topic. Absolutely. Um, is this your first podcast interview, Zach? Yes, it is actually. How do you like the studio? It's a lovely studio. Perfect, <laughs> perfect. It's good to have someone that's not a part of the media booth gang in here to have experience it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think, Zach, we'll just we'll just start with you introducing yourself. Tell us a bit about yourself and I guess the history in, in, in your career and we'll go from there. Yeah, sure. All right. So my name's... Zachary Pagliano, as you all know, um, I went to university in Brisbane at the at QUT and I studied a banking and finance and law double degree. I then finished yeah. my <laughs> didn't hate yourself enough. <laughs> <laughs> I then um, yeah finished off with practical legal training, which is a post grad course that you need to complete before you can get admitted as a lawyer. And then I went down to the University of Melbourne and completed some IT. Oh, sorry, IP master's subject yeah, wow. subjects down there. Got registered as a trademark attorney and have been building a trademarks practice and an innovation, I guess, technology practice at Red Chip for the last um, eight years. Yeah, well, wow, impressive. Wow. How long was that journey for you, sort of the education side of things? The education was a long journey. <laughs> <laughs> Felt longer. Doesn't want to remember it. Was, it. Yeah, it, was a, it was a long journey, probably seven to seven to eight years of study. Well, wow. in so impressive, yeah. And so, um, what does I guess so you sort of briefly touched on what what you're building there at Redship, but I yes. guess sort of for uh, you know the listeners, what can they you know generalize what people come to you for like specific issues and things like that that you can sort of help them with? Yeah, so I suppose my relationship with with Ross has been that we specialize on predominantly digital businesses um, that have a form of technology mostly software that they're looking to commercialize further develop and exploit yeah um, a lot of the time they're not just looking to trade in australia and they are looking to take their business global um, and so we work with them from the very inception point right through to uh, where they are wanting to to be listed or otherwise listed on the Australian Stock Exchange or otherwise where they want to flip into another jurisdiction and continue their cra- capital raising efforts. Um, often that that happens with with the US or uh, in the UK. Yeah, cool. That's awesome. Mm. And uh, then and then obviously uh, a big part of that's around tr- um, the trademark and copyright side as well. Yeah, that's right. Uh, especially the trademark side, when mm. when the business is first looking to to launch, getting that right is is critical. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's probably one of those things, you know, for us as a as a small business, and a lot of our customers being small business, um, you know, the the thought and I guess idea of trademarks and copyrights is um, seems like an expensive one, but really. If you've got it all, you know, got your structure right and got things right, it's it's actually not a very big expense to protect your brand, really, is it? Well, to start out with, anyway. No, that's right. So long as you do your due diligence and ensure that you are choosing a 
brand that you are going to be able to register, yep. then, then it's a pretty easy path. If and by can. that you mean unique as in, you know, that something doesn't exist already or in a, in a similar class or something like that, does it? Yeah, that's right. So when you file a trademark, effectively what a trademark is, is it's just a sign that distinguishes your business from that of a competitor. So in its simplest form, it can be a brand, um, a brand name and that can just be the word or it can be a symbol that's accompanying a, a brand name mm. or it can be kind of a composite mark where it's a device, a stylized word and a tagline. Oh, okay. Um, also, you can register colours like Tiffany has the blue. That Does Cadbury have their purple as well, Ca I think? Cadbury weren't able to register purple <gasps> um, <Wow>. um, <laughs> because it was seen to be something that was needed by other traders yeah. and, and something that was legitimately used by a number of different other confectionery companies. And so for them to own purple was going to be a bit, a, bit, a bit, bit problematic. Yeah. <laughs> um, ANZ Blue, that's trademark. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I guess any anything that's distinguishing your business can, can be a trademark. And then when you go through a registration process, once it has been registered, then you get exclusivity to yeah, cool. use that sign in relation to the goods or services that you are wanting to provide under that brand. Mm. Um, so there are two reasons why the trademark might not be able to be registered. Yep. The first is exactly as you said with the purple colour that Cabri were looking to register. It's too it's too generic. It's not something that's unique to Cadbury. Yeah. And in if you were if the court was to give Cadbury the purple, then a whole bunch of other confectionery companies like Daryl Lee and um, I think uh, there are some Mars products yeah. that are purple as well. Yeah. Um, would then not be able to really be able to use purple any longer. Mm. Um, so there's a there's a a balancing that needs to occur at a public policy level of okay, well, does this person deserve exclusivity, or is this something that should be generally available to the yeah, public right. mm. so that they can describe what it is that they are doing? Yeah. Um, so. The first thing is, one, the name should be distinctive. So a great example is Apple. Apple has nothing to do with personal computing devices because it is an unusual concept. No one else will need to use Apple to refer to computers. Yeah. So yeah. it's an effective trademark. Yeah, right. Um, the other side of it is you're not allowed to register something that already has been registered by someone before you in relation to the same goods and services. Mm -hmm. So they're, they're the two main checks. One, you want it to be distinctive and not descriptive of the goods or services that you're providing or um, some type of a characteristic of how you're performing, whether it's quick or a geographical mm. location, all those kinds of things need to be kept out of an effective trademark when, when you're yeah. looking to develop one. And I guess that's why it is important to think um, or to note, I guess, for people starting a business. We touched on this a little bit briefly a couple of podcasts ago, but when you're starting out the business name process, don't keep it as simple as like list, you know, naming your service that you're doing, like, you know, Jim's pool cleaning service, because ultimately later down the line, when you want, if you want to look to trademark it, if you've got the service that you're providing in the name, then that can potentially be problematic. That, when that, it comes to, you know, compliance. Yeah, that, that's correct. You won't be able to register or it will be very difficult to yeah. register. And then in addition to that, even if you are able to achieve registration, the protection that you get is much, is much slimmer. So you might need to kind of go from 
if we were using Apple as an example, you would ideally just look to register the word Apple on its own. Mm. But where the mark is seen to be descriptive, then you need to add in a symbol because you can't just use the word because the word's too 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 broad in yeah. general. Mm. Um, and then by adding in the symbol means that, well, other people can probably use the, the word that you've chosen or one similar to it so long as they use it with a different a different type of logo. So if you yeah. come up with something really unique, you'd one, it's easy to register and two, you are keeping people much further away from your brand, which is the problem with those descriptive marks. Even if you are able to register something, they can be difficult to enforce and to keep, mm. to keep your competitors at, at, at a distance. And that's the, hard, that's the other part too is, you know, a trademark and a, or, or, or anything like that is only as good as your enforcement, isn't it, really? Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, you do need to take enforcement into your own hands. Um, we have a service that we call Brand Guard that runs an automated check and kind yeah. of reports results in. But ultimately, if you if you have a mark, you need to you need to use it or lose it. And mm-hmm. if you don't enforce your rights, then other people using a similar name to yours over time will gain enough rights to continue to use that name. Because mm. um, age is a ca- age is a factor of all this, isn't it? That's right. So if you've been using a, 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 a brand and you haven't had it registered and you've been using it for, say, four or five years across Australia, then despite the fact that there are other brands that might predate you, um, once you've got that level of use, you should be able to achieve registration despite the fact that there is someone before you with a, with yeah, a conflicting right. mark mm. as a consequence of you being able to continue to use that brand and, mm. and for the trademark owner not having stepped in and enforced their rights. Is there like a decay limit, like a, like a, a statute, but ultimately like how long between enforcements or is it like a lot of trademarks sort of case-by-case case basis? Um, so I guess you need to use your mark as in offer goods or services underneath your brand within mm. within three years of filing now um, and then after three years from the filing date at least once every three years after that. So you can't just clog the trademark database up <laughs> with... Um, 100,000 trademarks. Yeah, with, with trademarks that I swear aren't actually my being... Take off. Yeah, that aren't <laughs> actually being used. So... Um, is that a new sort of rule as such or has that always been like that? No, it's always been like that um, and it was five years uh, but recently it's changed to three yeah. and in Australia <clears throat> things are slightly different from other countries. It's most strict in the US um, where they actually make you provide evidence of your use of the brand in interstate oh, wow. commerce um, in the fifth and sixth year and then again at renewal. Um, so they have a much harsher system over there where if you don't prove that you've used it, you, you do in fact lose it. Wow. Mm. wow. So is, there, is Australia looking to head that way anytime soon or is that just sort of something that the US is going to Like, like everything else, we copy them. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think that there are certainly some benefits to the way that the American system is run, uh, but I don't think that Australia will be following suit anytime soon. Cool, good. There are, yeah, <laughs> Great. There, there are a number of more trademarks in the US system and so they need to be stricter about yeah. how marks are left and also about what specifications, goods or service specifications are mark claims. In Australia, you can have much broader claims, like you could just say that you're providing software, whereas in, rela- in, in, in the US, if you're filing, you need to 
say what the specific purpose and outcome of the software was. Right. You wouldn't just be able to say we do software because it's <laughs> such a broad yeah. field. Mm. Oh, that's good. That's cool. And that, and that's probably pretty reassuring to a lot of, you know, customers or, or businesses that have been around for an established amount of time because, you know, like like myself, I didn't I didn't trademark uh, MediaBooth for, you know, what, three, four years. Yeah, yeah. Well, so... It's yeah, something that a lot of like people do. Small businesses, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Which but, you know, <laughs> it's, it's the old bootstrap. You know, <laughs> if you can't afford it, you can't afford it. But mm. you know, it should be as we've said before. You know, high on a priority list. Yep. And you know, in in certain cases, in in some cases, and I'll leave that open to Zach. But I I don't think it's as expensive as you know probably people's perception of it is. Mm. Um, you oh. know, obviously there's a lot of variables around that, and you know the brand and you know the classes and how many classes and all that sort of stuff as well. But mm. You know, for for me, I, I thought it was quite a economical yeah, practice I for, in my for something. Time, I've probably had 15, 20 cases of small businesses that have brought it up and said, oh, I've got this letter, I need to stop using the name, or yeah. I've got somebody else who's just started, you know, worked with me for, um, you know, for three years and then gone out on their own with a very similar name and things like this. So yeah. I, I would, you know, experience and hindsight's a wonderful thing, but I'd recommend anyone. Mm. Um, and a lot of small businesses, they start, you know, with the mindset of just being sole trader and small business. And before they know it, they're two, three years in and they've grown quite rapidly um they've got a lot more to protect very early on so mm. yeah 100 percent. and zach you guys look after like the, the the incorporation as well so so you guys do that sort of stuff as well yeah so i suppose it's probably worth talking through what the difference is between a company name slash a business name and, and a trademark and how those systems operate and what the order is in terms of getting a new business off the ground what 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 you should focus on first. Mm. So a company name is something that's registered with ASIC and that is what ASIC's record on their database calls you as and it matches up to the Australian company number that you're also given at, at the point of incorporation. Um, now, separately, you can also register business names and business names is then where it comes up as a trading as if, if, if your company name is different from your business name. So is, is yours here? Yeah, so mine is Wide Marketing Group Proprietary Limited Trading as Media Booth Australia. Yeah, so... Right, and our trademark is Media Booth. Yeah, so the, the business name there, you've, re you've registered Media Booth as a business name and then Media Booth is the main distinguishing feature of what makes you different from your competitors how you're identified as being different yep. um but you don't really use wide marketing oh really no it's it's just a, a background you know it's just the, the company mm. yeah as such just yeah. the history <laughs> and service uh, agreements yep. yeah and so i guess an interesting or a, a clear way of showing the difference between your trademark and your company name or your business name and they don't all necessarily need to align is if you think of a, a can of coke um on big kind of stylized running writing old school text across the can it says coke now coke is a trademark of coca-cola amatil but somewhere in the small print on the back it will say coca-cola amatil limited now yeah. that's the company that owns the trademark, but really on the product and, and equally on a website or another business that's providing services, the header of 
the document will have your brand and then somewhere typically in the footer or in small font somewhere you'll just have your company name with your ACN or ABN as as those reference identifiers. Now you need to have those reference identifiers whenever you are I guess engaging with third parties, particularly in trade or commerce. So there's under the Business Names Act it says that you need to record your business name or your company name on business documents. Mm-hmm. Um but that doesn't preclude you from being able to use your trademark much more um, loudly. And, mm. and so that's normally what businesses do. And, and just because you can't register your company name as aligning with exactly what your trademark is doesn't mean that you can't use your trademark as, as your brand um, and your trademark can still be different from your business name as well. Yeah. Mm. Um, which is a good one to note. So, you know, stupid things like letterheads and things like that. Put it on there. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, put it on there and then put a TM next to it if it's not registered and put an R next to it if it has been registered. And that's a good one. Explain that to me. Why, why would someone go and do that if they actually haven't done anything? How does that protect them in a way? Yeah, so the R symbol means that a mark has been registered and... You need to register your trademark in each separate country that you are looking to to trade in. And so the R can be used in a country where it has been registered but really shouldn't be used in marketing material that is international if you haven't registered your mark in particular countries where that material is going to be disseminated. Um, Whereas you can use the TM without registration and TM just means that you're claiming it as a trademark. So again, the most basic definition of a trademark is a sign used to distinguish your business from a competitor. So you can put the TM on anything that's unique. So a good good example of that is for us, right? Media Booth is trademarked, right? Yeah. Knowledge Booth, which is what we call our education series, our video series and this podcast Mm. um, is TM. It has TM on it. Yeah. Right. So you'll be able to see live live versions of that mm. on, on our website. Yeah. And I didn't get that. <laughs> 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 <Okay, serious. laughs> but right. um, she'll get it next time, don't <laughs> yeah. I? Won't you? Good one, Siri. And thanks. Thanks for your input. <laughs> and the yeah, the benefit of the TM is just to warn other people that you are using this as a dis- as a distinctive sign to distinguish your business. And so, if people have interacted with you and you know that they have, then it's going to look pretty bad if they then come up with a brand that is similar when you know that they've seen yours yeah. and, and yeah. they know that you're claiming it as a trademark. Yeah. Um, so I, 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 where where you can, I'd definitely yeah be inclined to put the TM um, where it isn't registered just to warn people off. And also if you are looking to build uh, evidence um, case to put forward to IP Australia for them to accept your mark where where it is seen to be descriptive or otherwise where there are prior marks um, that have been identified, then it's something that's going to improve your evidence as well because it's going to be clear that you are and have been using the brand as a trademark and, and you've claimed it mm. as that's actually, that's actually really interesting. I would never have thought that, that mm. if you mark that, that it's going to help you in the future. Yeah, yeah that's the protection. Right. It's, that's massive. It is massive. And is there, um, I notice obviously with the registered um, circle and all that sort of stuff, it tends to be in the top right corner of it. Is that an, an actual location for it? Does it have to be like there as law. such or is, is that just a common practice? Yeah, it's just common practice. Um, one thing that you may pick up 
now if you're looking after this discussion with a little bit more intel is that sometimes a brand will have multiple TMs or R's mixed through it. McDonald's is a good um, example of that. They've got a number of different brands that they throw around like Macca's, McDonald's. Yeah. I'm mm. loving it. Each of those where they're compiled next to each other, you'll you'll typically notice the TM or an R next to each specific element. So yeah, that's I suppose the just a confused part, The important part about the use where where there's a few different elements, if you um, are breaking them down and using them individually, that's how you're going to get broadest protection. And so if you've got a device that's a unique symbol, then you might put the TM next to that along with the stylized way that you've written um, your your brand mm. or alternatively if you're just using your brand in in text um throughout a business document or on your website then you can also just put it next to the, the plain font should um, it be next to it every time you say the word um no i don't i don't think it needs to be next to it every time but in in prominent locations especially if you are Start of a sentence to, all that sort of stuff well yeah you don't want to go to overboard and 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 clog up i suppose your text but if if there are instances predominantly where it's marketing or advertising i'd I'd be using it more often than not there but if it's just in relation to um, an internal kind of document or otherwise just correspondence to a client that isn't Mm. um so i have to i have to ask you a really quite a cool question have you looked into the um big mac versus big jack um, <laughs> ongoing court case. Yeah, no, court that case. is. Yeah, that is. Uh, yeah, is that actually a court case, or is that just a marketing? It's, no, it's a, it's a it legit was? one. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah it is, it is I wasn't sure if, when I saw the ad whether it was just a good marketing ad. <laughs> yeah. I think I think that ad is just raising them all the funds that they can get to yeah. probably challenge what's about to happen or has happened. Yeah, well, I think McDonald's will definitely come out swinging, and I think that yeah. the case has been slightly different here as to the EU. Um, I haven't looked into it myself in a great amount of detail but um yeah there's a few interesting kind of concepts that are at play particularly whether or not i guess an uh, a usual consumer of fast food is ever going to be confused between a big jack and a big mac um and I, work, I worked at McDonald's for nine years. I guarantee the average consumer there probably would get confused. Sorry to all that. Uh, McDonald's was I mean, <laughs> it's purely, purely because the amount of orders I've taken where someone thinks that they're at Hunger Jack's or at KFC and has yeah. asked for a Whopper. Like, yeah. I, you know, it, it happens. It you know, definitely. the funny thing is, I did that last night. <laughs> I, wa- I, worked, I walked into Burgard. To try all the noodle box. <laughs> oh, yeah, nice. <laughs> Whoops. Well, I don't know why. I don't know why. <laughs> happens to everybody. I like to think I've got a lot of common sense, but <laughs> not that much. But I, I would say on that case, right, as a good identifier is Big Mac, Big Mac is used far more often than Big Jack. I'd, before the, I seen mm. those ads and the things that were happening, I'd never heard of Big Jack. Well, it was a new product. Yeah. They launched oh, a, new, a product new product and called it, it that. Okay, yeah, yeah. I thought it might have been yeah, hiding yeah. in the background. No, 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 I'm going to put a spin out there. I wouldn't be surprised, I wouldn't be surprised if they they turn around and said, okay, this is probably going to cost us X amount in legal fees, but compare that to an actual marketing campaign of marketing the burger, it's probably less and they're probably loving it. Probably. <laughs> Actually, I think that's trademarked, isn't it? <laughs> By Maccas. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no, that's... Because that's, um, they've definitely got some good airtime over it. They've definitely got some good, mm. you know... Yeah, they have. Uh, Just as a bit of fun, which which side would you prefer to be on in that? 
Um, well, after you've said that you think <laughs> that people who are buying these burgers are going to be confused, um, probably I'd prefer to be on McDonald's. Yeah, they got, they got deeper pockets too. <laughs> yeah. So. so do you know the story behind why it's called Hungry Jack's? Yeah, well, I and, think that and, was and another trademark King. issue. It, yeah. it, there was a prior mark in Australia. Was it a prior mark, was it? Yeah. yeah I, I thought I'd read something where it was either a prior mark or I thought I'd actually read that someone stuffed up. And, and it wasn't actually filed in time or something. And then there was a little burger joint in South Australia yeah. that opened up and, and they were called Burger King. Yeah. And yeah, because they're, they're bur- yeah, Burger King everywhere else. Like in, yeah. in even New Zealand, they're fine. And yep. yeah, over here. No? Yeah, that's right. Hungries. So definitely the importance of getting your trademark in first. <laughs> Imagine how much that burger shop's worth in South Australia. <laughs> yeah, probably been trying to buy it for centuries. <laughs> um, yeah. I just want to, I just want to quickly um, dial back just a second. I just had a question regarding why do you think Zach that businesses don't ultimately come, you know, come to you, engage in services, and sort of get that trademark? Like people that do sort of come to you what what do they sort of say with their reservations or like do they do they feel like the whole process is a lot different than when they actually come through and actually do it yeah or is it a price thing or you know yeah um yeah i'd i'd say most of the time people don't do it just because they simply don't know what Mm. filing and registering a trademark is and that it's actually different from registering a business name or a company name and that it is what you need to do in order to exclusively use your brand. Um, people just generally don't have any concept of, mm. of any know. of it. No, no education so, in it. Like yeah, and so, um, which it is a daunting thing, you know. I, I, I remember I looked at it and I was just, you know, started reading into it, started talking to people and yeah. asking more about it, and mm. that's kind of how I figured it out. And then obviously I met you, and yeah, and then you know we've obviously worked with a few clients already on that and. I think it's something that, um, you know, uh, as, as Tony it? says, you know, he, half of his job is education. Yeah. So, you know, when you're starting your business, it. you're wearing 14 different hats as it is. Yeah. The, the 15th hat is yeah. there, the, the legal side of it and whatever else. And typically most people think, yeah, the legal side of it, and what's the first thing they think of is how much is that going to cost me? Yeah. yeah. New businesses don't have funds. They haven't got a slush fund there of, you know, uh, unlimited mm. um, to go and, you know, do all of this kind of stuff. So it just gets mm. put on the back burner, on the back burner, and then, yeah. yeah. But I guess, you know, if, if you are one of those businesses that are starting out and you do want to, you know, do that stuff but you can't afford it at the moment, look at the TM. Yeah. Market with the TM. For sure, yeah. Set yourself up for later on yep. and then speak to someone like Zach. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's like any, if you, if you plan for it, if you know that, okay, I've got all, all the uh, all the education in the world, I want to start this new business and essentially I need $10,000 to cover some legals, do some marketing, do this, whatever else, at least you can plan for it. And it may not be that you either give away your, your current job or whatever else until you have this. Yes, a lot of people are forced into business because there's, you know, a lot of circumstances, but yeah. I think it's education. Once you know, okay, this, I mean, I would not start a business today without, you know, 20 grand sitting in the bank. I just wouldn't do it. It's too hard. I've, mm. I've done it too many times and, you know, but that's only come through doing it the hard way and whatever else. Mm. Yep. Now now I'm a little bit more educated. Um, I would plan better for it. So, mm. Yeah, and, and look, not, not everyone has that luxury of having 20, 30 grand in the bank. Oh, for you know? sure. 100%. Media booth started on a fold-out table in the back of a house in surface, yep. you know. So, <laughs> you know. It, it all begins somewhere, definitely. And, you know, and, definitely. and I was literally wondering, you know, how are you gonna, how are you gonna make any money this week? Yeah, that's literally how it started. You yeah. know, so look, you know, it's hard work, but I think being, yeah, as you say, educated around it mm. and thinking of, it, yep, speak to someone like Zach. 
yeah, sure. start the conversation early, you know, and on that, get an idea yeah, of that cost. On the the topic of education, is there a place that you re- like you normally send people to sort of start that journey on learning? Because obviously, you know, please don't say IP Australia's website. <laughs> it's the most confusing place I've ever been. Is there like you know, it's <laughs> just a lot there. Yeah, like what out there is I guess user friendly for people to sort of chew through and and ultimately just get enough of an idea to then make a, a bit of more of an educated decision. Um. Yeah, the the problem with a lot of kind of legal resources are that they are expensive and they also are kept behind closed doors under lock and key because law firms pay a lot of money for good material. Yeah, um, <clears throat> there's a website called Osley and otherwise looking at the Trademarks Act and the Trademarks um, regulations um, will detail what. I guess the law entails, but um, just in terms of an overall understanding, normally I suppose that's why clients come to us so mm. that they don't need to really learn. Yeah, yeah. All about go get it. a degree in. Yeah. <laughs> um, they can just come to us, tell us what their circumstances and their objectives are, and then we can tell them what we think is going to be relevant and explain why. Explain why we think that things should be done in a, in a certain way. Yeah. Um, and then they can kind of take it or leave it from there. Would you get many that are coming to you reacting because they've been forced into it? Yeah, a lot of the time businesses will come to us and they'll have received a cease and desist letter and they'll be asking, you know, whether or not they have to rebrand um, and where, what their position is and what, mm. their, what their legal rights are, if, especially if they've been trading for some time before they get this letter. Mm. Um how many of your customers do you reckon that is? Is it 50%? Is it more? Is it less? Well, we've got, I, I suppose, a bit of a bias towards seeing more of it because we are in the business of providing trademark services. Yeah, um, yeah, of course. So, yeah, uh, look, it probably happens once once every week, yeah. once every other week. Someone comes in and they've yeah. received a letter and they need to they need to rebrand or they need to kind of put up a bit of a front to mm. make the other party go go away without continuing to pursue them yeah mm. and can i ask um in in that experience that you've sort of dealt with that how often does the company like how often does the person who comes to you with a letter come out the winner um and not have to rebrand or is it you know is is that the point where it's like oh it is kind of too late at that point because there's, there's you're limited in what you can sort of do yeah a lot of the time these letters do come out of the blue and the person that's received them wasn't really aware of the trademark regime and didn't do any checks and balances before they chose a name and mm. they have chosen a name that is infringing someone else's mark a lot of the time um, as well people won't understand <clears throat> when one trademark is actually infringing another mark and so they may look at a business and go oh yeah i like what they do i'm going to name myself something similar yeah Mm -hmm. Um, which is obviously a big no-no if someone's if the person you're copying off has a registered trademark and has a distinctive name because then you're yeah you're really kicking the hornet's nest there yeah um the other side of it is a lot of businesses come to us and they haven't registered a trademark and someone else has adopted a name that's very similar to theirs and they come and they and they say, you know, what what can we do about this? Mm. This is our brand, um, and now these people are receiving benefit from it. There's been consumer confusion about who they are and who we are, and we really want them to go go away, and drop the name and and rebrand and kind of choose a t- name that's very different from 
yeah. what it is that they're using. And ultimately in that case, then it's a bit difficult to sort of help if they don't have, you know, if they haven't started building a case before that or anything. Yeah, that's right. So without a registered trademark, your rights of to exclusively use a brand are very limited. Um, the whole trademark regime was built off a common law action of passing off, which is that you're... One, one trader is passing themselves off as that of the other. Now, in order to prove that, you need to be able to demonstrate that you've got a really significant reputation amongst mm. consumers that are going to be dealing with the two businesses, and that's very hard and expensive. Yeah. The other um, cause of action that you might bring is misleading and deceptive conduct under the Australian Consumer Law, um, where you're alleging that by the third party using a name that's similar to yours, that it's going to lead to consumer confusion. So they're the two, they're the two different actions that you have available yeah. outside trademark infringement. Um, but both of those require you to establish a significant reputation that an yeah. average consumer is going to get confused between your brand and the other. Now, there's no reputational threshold when you've registered a trademark. It's just, is this brand confusingly similar to yeah. this brand. Yeah, so a lot a lot similar, like a, a lot more easy to sort of just rip black and white. Okay, yeah. That's right. Yeah. It's just is, could someone be confused between these two brands yeah. um, if they're kind of put up in front of them? Um, whereas with the, um, the non-trademark actions, non-registered trademark actions, you actually really need to demonstrate a significant reputation and, and that in itself is costly and difficult mm. um, and and so it does make it almost a, a path too hard to follow um, for businesses wanting to stop others from using a similar name mm. if they don't have trademark mm -hmm. registrations. And that's where a lot of them probably give up and go, you know what, let's rebrand. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll trademark it from the start <laughs> yeah. on the rebrand. Yeah, we'll do yeah. it right at the time. Yeah. So it is It is important. And, and you can obviously, you know, jump on um, IP Australia and do a search for this and, you know, find out some pretty good, you know, indicators very quickly, can't you, of, of how protected, you know, even your current brand or, you know, a new brand that you're about to launch as well. Yeah, yeah. Through the IP Australia website, there's good search tools um, and then we obviously provide um, search services prior to settling on a concept if you are working with a designer or otherwise prior to really adopting a brand um, once once you have got a few iterations mm. from a designer. Which is probably a pretty good segue into talking about classes and, and things like that because you can have multiple trademarks in different classes obviously for the same thing, can't you? Yeah, yeah. So um, when you're looking at whether or not two brands are going to be infringing there's a comparison that needs to be drawn between what the actual brand looks like and then there's also a comparison that needs to be drawn between the goods or services that are being offered under the brand. Um, so if, using our earlier example of Apple, if there was a fruit shop called Apple, then Apple, the mobile computing company, um, is never really going to be able to stop a fruit company from being called yeah. Apple because no one's ever going to be confused between a fruit shop apple and... Um, <laughs> You'd be surprised. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so the way that you detail what goods and services are to apply to your mark and those that you're to have exclusivity of in relation to use of your brand is that there are packagings of or clusters, groupings of 
goods and services um, and at the time of choosing to file, um, you need to designate exactly what goods and services you're going to be providing under mm. your brand and what you're intending to provide under your brand in the next three years, um, keeping in mind that there's that non-use after three years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you can go back at any time and add more classes and things like that, but that would be a re... Um, is that a, is it a full application again? Yeah, so you can't you can't broaden any of the goods and service specifications that you've included in your application. You can narrow them at any point in time, and you can remove, but you can never broaden. Um, okay. And so, if you want to, so, and that's the whole forward thinking for the next three years. You yeah. need to, you know, that's this is where we think yeah. we're going to go, and yeah. over exaggerate yeah. almost. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you can a little bit, but obviously I have to bear in mind if if you're broader than what you need to be, then there's a more there's more chance more that you're going to conflict with other marks, yeah. And, yeah. and then there's also that vulnerability, which is, hey, well, if you haven't done it in the next three years, then that those goods and services can get struck off your application. Yeah. What happens? It's already What happens if a if a business goes bankrupt or stops trading for whatever reason? Let's just say something happens, Coca Cola, and they and they go under. Yes. What's is there any like? Does the trademark or the copyright still go even though the business like as soon as the business stops trading, is that it? Is that open slather? Can anybody go and use that that name? Um, it's a little bit complicated. So. I guess it depends where the business is in in its winding up. Sure. Um, if it is dead and um, the company has been deregistered, uh, then the trademark will sit still on IP Australia and st- until the renewal comes up, mm. or, un- yeah, okay. or, un- or until s- yeah, right. or until someone attacks the mark um, for for non-use. And yeah. and often you will see marks that are on there that belong to a company that has been deregistered. In which case, you know that you can um, yeah. knock it on the head, um, but you still need to go through that process of, yeah. of oh. actually removing. And, and and the renewal is ten years. Yeah, right. ten yep. years from the date of filing. And yep. if you um, acquire another company, do you then get their trademark? Like is there another process that you've got to go through to then renew or make those trademarks all good or is it just pretty much if you buy a company? It would depend how you buy the company though. Like if you're yeah. buying, you know, wide marketing group and media booth, which would be how it would typically be sold, yeah. Um, yeah. then you're just acquiring yeah, all that everything. as a structure you just take over that so you yeah. probably wouldn't have to do any changes really yeah so there's 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 but two it depends obviously. yeah there's yeah. there's two ways i suppose that you can sell a business it's by by way of a share sale mm. or kind of a unit sale if it's a if it's a unit trust and that's as you said simply kind of coming in control of the puppet and holding the the puppet strings and yeah. the puppets otherwise the same or you can do what's called an asset sale which is to buy all of the plant and equipment and goodwill and specific assets from a company in which case you would need to go through that transfer process yeah um, but it's it's relatively straightforward so IP Australia maintain a public database called the trademarks register mm. um, and all registered trademarks or and in fact all file filed trademarks are in a database but you can see which ones are registered and you can see who the owner is and you can see what goods and services they cover and all mm. the pertinent kind of activities that have happened as part of the application process and all the critical dates moving mm. forward in terms of when renewal is and cool. all that type of stuff yeah and uh, I, I also just want to ask a question as well because like we have quite a couple quite a few um franchisees yes that, that, you know and and franchises 
as clients. And ultimately, um, the best process for, let's say, a franchisee, if they want to protect their business, do they do it themselves? Do they go through head office? Sort of what, what's, yeah, I guess what's their process to sort of get that, get that ball rolling? So typically what would happen is a company will start off and they'll start trading and then they'll go, hey, you know, we're killing it and, um, we think that we can empower other people to mm. to reach the same success that we have and give people a leg up by introducing them into our operations, mm. into our branding, into our kind of brand guide. And at that point in time, that's when a business will typically transition to become a franchise. Um, and at that point in time, you'll need to make sure that as the franchisor you have good protection around what whatever it is that your your branding assets are um and you also need to so the, sure the master would always hold the trademark and you wouldn't trademark you know new south wales or queensland or no, you know the, no, the brand no that's that right and yep. the fr- and the franchisee not only will it not be able to own the registered trademark, but if the franchise agreement comes to an end, then they'll have the the brand taken off them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So they'll so no have use access to. Yeah, use right. it that's right. Yeah. That the 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 franchisor as the trademark owner would have the exclusive right to use the brand, and they would have granted a right to the franchisee by way of a franchise agreement. Mm-hmm. And at the expiration or termination of that franchise agreement, the right to continue to use that brand um, would end and the owner would maintain their exclusivity mm. and that the franchisee would unfortunately be yeah. left without anything. Um, and the next part that I'd want to sort of bring up, which which is something I didn't understand at the time of doing one, was um, how long the process is. Yeah. It's actually pretty long. Yeah, yeah. So we've typically been filing by way of what's called a TM Head Start and that will give you an assessment within a week. Um, so that's really handy. But typically the process whereby you're just registering in Australia will take at least seven months um, and it can take a number of years. Um, the reason that it needs to take seven months is there's a number of international conventions and agreements that uh, Australia and most other industrialised countries around the world have ratified and the Paris Agreement gives you six months from the date that you filed in Australia or or any other member country to file internationally in other jurisdictions. So the the purpose of it originally was if, if we were all going to an exhibition in, say, Milan and I had a cool new product that I wanted to introduce, then I could file a trademark in my, my home country, go to the expo, show my goods, work out whether or not I'm going to be able to sell into any particular countries and then I'd have six months from the date that I filed the original application to actually move into those new markets and know that no yeah, one right. could leapfrog in front of me by me taking the product. So it's more it's more for the trademark registrar, like register rather than you've got an extra six months to, you know, make an appeal. Yeah. So it's more for the, you know, for the actual person trying to register the trademark, give them a bit more time to it, get. Yeah, it's, 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 That's it's, really it's, interesting, it's yeah. yeah, it's to give you an opportunity to take your mark internationally without people seeing what you're doing and, and basically ripping you off yeah, yeah. in another country because 
you you really only gain rights where you've used the mark in a particular country. So if you went over to the US, there'd be a whole bunch of different businesses that you could effectively rip off and and bring back here and register a trademark here where where they didn't have it. Yeah, right. That, that actually brings me to uh, something. Many many years ago, I used to be part of a like a little investor cluster, and we used to come together with ideas of products, and if they got voted through, they would then go into you know conception and all that sort of stuff. And yeah. I developed something that I won't talk. I won't mention what it is, but it was Did a very. It was a, it, was a, <laughs> it was a very cool product. Um, it got voted through. Um, it got investor money. Uh, we sent the drawings overseas for um, production costings. Yeah. Uh, I reckon within maybe not even quite six months, maybe four to five months, that product existed in a big, big retail outlet here in Australia. Still does today. <laughs> and I think that was, you know, lack of me doing anything like that to protect. Mm. Right. Yeah, wow. Done and dusted. Mm. It was copied. That product yeah. was simply copied. Wouldn't surprise me. Imagine, imagine, how, <laughs> but imagine yeah. how often that's actually happened. Yeah, like, I mean, it's, it's in today's day and age, like, it, does an original thought exist? Like, it's so hard. Especially, oh, when, especially when you're going overseas unique. to countries to get it built or get prototypes mm. or whatever else. And obviously they don't, you know... Typically care, <laughs> especially <laughs> when they... An NDA is not worth much in China these days. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But, um, yeah, and, and obviously as part of the um, the, the trademarking process too, um, there's a like a period of contesting where someone can contest that that trademark or... Yeah, so... The, I've gotten the, the actual definition of it. If yeah, the opposition. Opposition. Um, the opposition process. So... When you file a trademark, the first thing that happens is IP Australia will assess it. Typically, the main points of inquiry will be, is the mark descriptive? Um, you need the mark to be distinctive in order for it to be registered. And is are there any prior conflicting marks that have been identified? If you clear those two hurdles, by and large, then IP Australia will accept the mark for registration, um, at which point in time it will go into the official trademark journal and be advertised for a period of two months from the fifth month to the seventh month um, after filing is the soonest that it can happen. And and it actually goes into a newspaper or a yeah, like something? A, like a, yeah, like the bulletin or... <laughs> yeah, there's an official, an official journal of trademarks. Tambourine Times. Right. Yeah, that's right. right. <laughs> <laughs> As if that company would be loving it. <laughs> But, um, yeah, so obviously it jumps into that phase and then comes out the other side. Yeah, once it's come out the other side, if, if no third parties oppose, then that's when it will be registered. Otherwise, if a third party does oppose the mark, then you'll need to go through a, a battle with that other party in order to work out, mm. I guess, where, where your rights sit and whether you can achieve registration or whether you need to slightly adjust your application to kind of reach a negotiated outcome. And, and that's party. like you, you mentioned your monitoring software before. That's where something like that would be obviously very handy for someone like me. Yes. That I, I obviously don't Google this every day. I don't look for, you know, new companies joining. You know, you, you're kind of the eyes in the back of my head as such, aren't you, really, in that, that aspect, and we would that's challenge right. something like that. Yeah, that's right. We would tell you if a trademark had been filed that was similar to Media Booth, mm. um, and we would also let you know whether any new company or business names have been um, registered or applied for um, that were similar to Media Booth or the same as Media Booth. And yep. so as soon as you saw that, then you could take proactive steps to kind of shut that down. Mm. And it makes a big difference if you can kind of nip it on the butt 
just as someone's taking off as opposed to after they've been trading for 12 or 18 months because they really don't want to let go of the brand and and they'll do anything to try and weasel out of it. Yeah, yeah. At what stage do you, um, let's just say um, Ross Files to Trademark Media Booth, and, you know, a week in, a month in, he sees a business out there advertising media booth and advertising, you know, trying to sort of rip the name off. At what stage would you feel comfortable enough to go down the road of a cease and desist to them? Like, would it be, you know, the day after you've registered the trademark, you've probably got a better chance? Or is there a, a set sort of time that you'd want the application to at least be through some kind of process is there yeah well it really needs to be assessed on a case-by-case basis obviously if you go too early then the third party can interject and then you can run through the opposition process Mm -hmm. um but that is a sheltered process that is through ip australia doesn't have much costs exposure if you lose Mm -hmm. and um also doesn't have the strict evidentiary legal requirements that you do if you go to court. Um, As an example, if you were to take the matter to the federal court, there's a $5,000 kind of application fee just to get heard. So to to run... to run this plus through. lawyers, yeah. To run this through, <laughs> to run to run the court's the through, cheap part. <laughs> it's 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 going to cost kind of twenty five thirty thousand dollars if you need to take it to court. Whereas yeah. going through the opposition process is is rarely going to be kind of more than ten fifteen thousand dollars. Yeah, right. You have so, to go yeah. the whole way. Yeah. Um, so it just depends on what the circumstances are and and what's going to be best for the client and really what what is going to be aligning with their objectives and their budget and also who the other side is, is yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. and how much money they have and when they started using the brand sure um, mm. cool and that would that that's pretty much i guess the the trademark process in a nutshell yeah um from from sort of start to end and obviously there's a there's a lot of variables to this so you know speak to an expert you know someone like zach and redship yeah and i and think ultimately the i guess there was a lot of information in in that sort of segment but um the process itself i think like for a lot of people shouldn't be looked at as i guess scary because ultimately you do have professionals looking into all of this stuff for you you don't necessarily need to go and do all that stuff yourself mm. we you know find it's no know. different to an accountant or yeah yeah exactly like that is it really know. like when you think about it yeah i guess you know it's just Hopefully a professional a to do the job than a- yeah yeah, well, right. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> true oh that's funny um the next one i wanted to touch on which um you know, obviously is in your field as well, which is really around terms and conditions, privacy policies and, and things like that and, yep. and, and the importance of them that probably people don't realise, especially terms and conditions. Yeah, yeah. So we prepare all kinds of legal documents for businesses that do have an online presence. Um, a lot of the time recently we've been producing what we would call a SaaS agreement for a platform that's being created that's offering services. So Mm -hmm. that's one main document that we've been producing a lot of. Um, And then the other main documents is just in relation to e-commerce and and how that's kind of managed neatly. That would have been booming as of late. Yeah, yeah. So we've been really busy dealing in all kinds of website legal documentation and there is a broad kind of spectrum. But... It's always handy to make sure that you're dealing with each of the parties that you're interacting with separately and in a tailored and well-considered way. And you, you really need to spend the time 
working with a lawyer to kind of tease out what all those risks that you have are and what the potential risks might be. Mm. One really, I guess, good example um, is a client that we've been setting new website terms and conditions for recently who has very high value stock and didn't have any terms and conditions whatsoever and one $10,000 item of stock that was sent over to WA has gone missing um, (laughs) as a consequence of him not having anything in his terms about when title and risk was passing in the goods. Um, It's something that the customer has just said is his fault because it hasn't been delivered um, and it has been paid for and he couldn't find a record within the shipping company and he didn't insure the goods because he kind of assumed that it was the client, the customer that was going to be taking the risk, but it was never detailed or agreed to. So Um, as part of your terms and conditions there, the moment that package is picked up by a courier, you can wipe your liability to a point. That's right. So long as you're clear in terms of what the rules of the engagement are, um, then whatever the customer agrees to, so long as it's not completely unfair, Mm. um, is how things are going to fly. And so if you take the time to make sure that you're the one setting the rules and that they're set to favour your business um, or otherwise they're set in a way that that has been considered and whilst it might be protecting the client, you've taken all the the practical steps to make sure that the item is insured because you are keeping risk on it Um, and just working through... I guess the end to end. So you don't necessarily need to, you know, screw someone over in your contract, but you need to know what you're going to do and that there's insurance and that there's a backup plan. Yeah. Um, you need to protect yourself at the end right. of the day. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's, it's, it's less so, I guess, just about creating a legal contract that's going to favor you over everyone else, but more so about working out what your business needs and how you create a good customer experience for mm. your your clients and how you mm. can detail what your processes are in a nice, succinct, kind of easy-to-read way so that it's nice when people work and buy from your business. It's a, it's a joyful experience. It's, mm. it's clear and everyone's kind of up front and everyone's, yeah. everyone's protected as a consequence mm. of that. And it's yeah. a big marketing point as well, you know, particularly when – I look at, you know, all the reasons why somebody won't buy from you, yes. and you and you need to alleviate all of those. So if you have all these structures and processes in place, you use that in your marketing and you say, listen, if you buy this $10,000 item from us and Australia Post lose it or whatever, there's insurance for that. You yeah, know what I mean? You right. use mm. it for yourself. It's because, yeah. you know, the Fire three or protection. four other quotes that they've got that haven't, they might even have it, but they don't state it. Yes. Um, you're going to be one up on them. So that's, mm. that's right. And, and putting forward a, a good experience whenever you are onboarding or delivering service is really going to resonate with your clients and really really lead to word of mouth referrals as well Mm. yeah Um, definitely and the next part is um is privacy policy and then the next privacy policy and the next part i wanted to talk about on top of that was cookie policies and obviously people seeing these pop-ups on websites all the time now it's a it's a common thing bit more compliant with some changes in the eu um does that meet australia like has australia got to do that or how does that work i'll let you sort of yeah so i guess there's Two main, two main legislative bodies. One is the Privacy Act, and that governs how a software company or any business, any digital business, is to 
deal with personal information. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the rules, the general rules under the Privacy Act are what's called the Australian Privacy Principles, APPs, as they're abbreviated to, and <clears throat> you need to be what's termed under the Act an APP entity in order for you to have strict kind of obligations to comply with the APPs. Now, an APP entity is defined as a business with plus 3 million revenue or annual revenue or otherwise an entity that's looking to exploit personal information uh, as part of a a service or offering. So if you're a marketing or advertising business that's generating or lead, lead gen business that really exists just to identify new prospective customers and then sell those, then you're going to need a privacy policy from the start because you're dealing in personal information. Yeah, right. Um, Whereas if you're only using personal information of your prospective customers and clients for your own internal purposes, then you're not really going to need a privacy policy until you're above three. Yep. Mm-hmm. Three mil annual rent. So, uh, like, just to give, I guess, a real world example. So, uh, like in the solar industry, you've got Solar Quotes, which yes. they're a very big company that ultimately provide up to five quotes from different companies yes. after someone in. So, they would need one from the start because obviously they are giving that information on. That's right. Yeah, they right. need to detail what information they're collecting, um, why they're collecting it, and then how it's being used. And as a part of that use, they need to be getting consent from the people that have put in their information so that they know that... And that, and that can be quite simple as, you know, by clicking submit, you're agreeing to... Yeah, blah, or ticking blah, blah. a box or something that, to... Yeah. That, yeah. That's right. You would just often have a box saying that... It's just I, an action I, of some yeah, sort. I yep. acknowledge that I've read and understood the privacy policy of... Yep. Which normally gets ticked mm. after people don't read it, so it's good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> and, then, um, and then jumping onto the cookie policy, which is, uh, as you were saying earlier to me before we started here, is, is kind of an extension of the privacy policy as such, isn't it? Yeah, so there's a few different ways to kind of dissect the privacy policy and one can kind of go into the realm of data protection and how a business might have practical measures and steps to ensure that um, they are protecting not just personal information but all data Mm. uh, of particular particular note is I guess the Ashley Madison data breach that was Mm. was a yeah, was a one. ripper, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, not good. Um, no, not 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 too good for them. So you can build out your privacy policy as then kind of being a data security policy. And a lot of the time, when you're dealing with universities or banks or other institutions that are more conservative, they'll want to see that data security policy. The other kind of aspects that need to get built into the privacy policy are depending on whether or not you're dealing with individuals that are in California. California has just recently enacted quite strict data um, and privacy regulations yeah, or otherwise. Some, that Does that come out of the antitrust sort of from like the Facebook and stuff or is that no, on, their own, on their own merit? I think that it's it's more just on their own merit, but right. they are more of a, I guess, a progress, seen as more of a progressive state and they are recognised particularly, as you said, with the advent of Silicon Valley. Yeah. To be at the forefront of 
of technology yeah. um, in a global context. Um, and the GDPR, um, which is the European data protection regulations, yeah. they've also raised the bar. Um, and so if you're an international company or if you're dealing with customers clients that are in the EU or in mm. um, Cal- California, then you're going to need to comply to those stricter standards. Um, so whilst you might not need to have an Australian privacy policy because you're under 3 mil rev or you're not dealing with personal information in in, in the context of um, commerce mm. externally, if you're selling to the EU or selling to individuals in California, then you really need to take into account what those data yeah, right. um, and privacy protections are. And that's where the advent of this cookie policy has stemmed from, um, more disclosure to individuals visiting the site so that they understand that they are being marked and, yeah. and logged and that there's going to be directed um, advertising efforts towards them as a consequence yeah. of, of where they've been cruising around the net. Yeah, right. We, we, yeah, because ultimately we all see it that, you know, you pop onto a website and then, it, you know, or you talk about something and then ultimately yeah. on Facebook there it pops in an ad. But um, it's cool to see, or I don't know if it's cool to see in our field, but ultimately I think Facebook's talking about um, – you know, introducing that incognito sort of cookie browser. Like ultimately, you know, when they go somewhere from Facebook, they can choose whether or not to log a cookie in this, in you know, in their session and things like that. So yeah. I think there's a lot of changes sort of coming around in that space. You know, in the not so distant future. So it'll be interesting to see how it changes the advertising landscape, especially yeah. for Facebook. Yeah, it's a con- constantly evolving area. Mm. Um, mm. That's yeah. That where the technology is running faster than the laws. Yeah. <laughs> and it, takes a while, it takes a while to write them. <laughs> yeah, and so, um, yeah, it will be very interesting to see how it all plays out, especially where there's more and more focus on, on, on big data analytics and more and more of a focus of, of AI and algorithms. Yeah, as, yeah definitely. As, assessing personal information and making decisions about individuals. It's... Um, yeah. Scary. Yeah, no, it's, it's interesting, yeah. exciting, and scary yeah. all at the same time. That's it yeah. for me, anyway. Hope, hopefully, no more ads that are trying to sell your product that you've already bought. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> That's just bad marketing. <laughs> yeah, you're like I've already bad remarketing. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, thank you so much, Zach. That's um, that's been super fascinating. Um, it, it is an area that I find interesting, to be honest. And you know, I'm sure many business owners owners are uh, of the same thought when. Mm. You know, and hopefully we've, we've woken a few of you up to actually start the conversation, you know, yeah, two, three, sure. four, five years down the track, you know. Yeah, you put a lot of you, 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 ta- you probably want to be talking business. to this guy before you've got to talk to this guy. That's, yeah, no, yeah, exactly. Absolutely. That's the difference. For sure. So for sure. thank you so much for coming on. Appreciate right, your time. Thanks, thank Zach. you, guys. Nice to meet you. Thanks, Thanks for listening. Boss. Cheers.